The GS Trophy is considered by many to be the ultimate motorcycle adventure challenge. But why? What exactly is the GS Trophy and why all the hype? My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manico. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedro. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bay. Jim Hart. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com Back in the 1980s, BMW launched a new type of motorcycle into their lineup called the R80GS. Some say it was the first adventure motorcycle. And at the time, I think many riders couldn't even get their head around what you were supposed to be doing with this bike. But that R80GS, and of course, sponsoring Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor and Long Way Round, have helped launch BMW into the adventure motorcycle market in a big way. And now that segment is about the only segment in the motorcycle industry that's continually growing and has been for a number of years. Well, after Borman and McGregor's trip, BMW stepped out on a limb again and launched the GS Trophy, a worldwide adventure bike competition that would draw riders from different countries to compete in one extreme event in one exotic location. And from that original GS Trophy, it's only gotten better, gaining recognition in the motorcycle community as an amazing adventure. Almost like the Dakar, except the GS Trophy is for the average rider. And actually, one other thing that stands apart from the Dakar, BMW pays for everything once you make it to the finals. How cool is that? Imagine if a Dakar rider was automatically sponsored. Now, just about anyone can have a shot at the GS Trophy, but what intrigues me most about this is how BMW, with their R80 GS and their GS Trophy, have helped shape the adventure motorcycle scene, and how that influences other manufacturers. KTM now has an adventure rally that they run, and who knows what's going to be next. In a day when rally attendance overall seems to be dwindling, could the GS Trophy be a catalyst for the motorcycle industry? So what's all the hype about the GS Trophy? What makes it so great? Or at least that's what they say. Well, today I'm going to sit down with Sean Thomas. Sean is heavily involved with BMW and with the GS Trophy. In fact, he is a BMW ambassador. Sean, great to have you back on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. We're in October now when we're recording this. Things have pretty much, I think, wrapped up for a lot of North America, except for the people who are lucky enough to ride year-round in, in those climates. So how was your season? How was it for you? Um, it was uh, it was definitely one for the books. It's been uh, an experience like no other. Um, my, uh, my job is generally to be an events person. So, you know, usually I'm standing in front of groups of people and talking and writing and doing that sort of thing. And of course that has been all but shut down. So, um, I have shifted into doing, uh, indoor activities or isolated activities for BMW mostly. And, uh, um, it's actually been kind of nice, you know, I, I traveled 95% of the time and now I've been home. I think my family's good and sick of me, but, uh, it's been really good to see him. <laughs> 95% of the time. So you're, you're just on the road going from event to event, country to country. Yeah, it, that is exactly right. Um, usually when I leave the house, I'll leave for, you know, two, 
I try to leave for no more than two weeks at a time, you know, so I get home and see everybody and then get right back on the road, sometimes literally a day later. Mm, but, yeah. uh, but since February, you know, I got back from the GS Trophy 2020 in New Zealand in February and then everything shut down. And I've basically been home with a few little jaunts here and there. I've been home ever since. What exactly do you do for BMW? So um, my title is brand ambassador. And generally what that means is that I understand the nuances of the product. So I know the bikes, I know the parts, I know the accessories, the apparel and that sort of thing. And, and I help people understand that. So um, they hire me to go to events, typically to speak to people about product. I make product videos for them. Um, I do uh um, educational information, you know, just helping people sort of wrap their heads around the bikes and the tech and the gear and what it is and why it's a benefit and that sort of thing. I think we, we sort of talked about it last time we had you on the, on the show, but what sort of schooling do you get for this sort of gig? <laughs> um, well, that's interesting because it's, it's all a little convoluted. You know, there's the, uh, you know, when a new bike comes out, of course, they've got a whole marketing team that comes up with top to bottom specifications on what it is and what it's all about. And and uh, what I like to do is meet with the designers and engineers that develop product and understand from their perspective what they've done and why they've done it. And the, the downside to that is, is that uh, designers, engineers don't typically have you know, they don't speak like a marketing person. So you, a lot of times what they say to you, you can't just take and, and regurgitate to um, people on the outside. You have to sort of, uh, you know, feng shui it, I, I guess you could say. And and uh, the marketing department normally does that. But it's really interesting for me to know, you know, why do they use the material that they use in the jackets? Why do they make the engine protection bars the way they make them? Why do they use the colors that they use? Why does it take so long? You know, these are kind of questions I get to ask them. And then I can bring this information to people that is sort of more raw and more realistic and more, you know, uh, digestible, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I, I thought with your type of job, it would be just the sort of thing you'd be, you'd be off now. You'd be laid off. I mean, with no events, but they've obviously created something new for you. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm self-employed. Um, so they hire me job to job. And when things fell apart as they did, I had to go figure out other things to do because they can't send me to Germany to learn about new product, for example. So, um, you know, one of the projects that I, um, talked to BMW about and they approved is, uh, I, I was working on a chainsaw in my garage and, I needed to know a little bit about how to replace the carburetor. So I looked online to YouTube and, and there was a video for that um, chainsaw and, and that carburetor. And there was a good solid 30 seconds of information that I really needed buried in 25 minutes of video. <laughs> and uh, it was really frustrating because I, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm sure that the um, narrator's history is really interesting, but, but that's not what I'm there for. You know, I want to know the details. I want to know them quick and fast and go. So I sort of translated that to what I do, and I realized things like traction control on bikes and anti-lock brakes and things like how to center stand a bike, you know, these are things that people ask me about all the time. And I decided it would be a really good idea to make videos that detailed these things, but very quickly. So I came up with a project called Two Wheels, Two Minutes, and it's two wheel tips and tech brought to you in under two minutes. BMW bought onto it, and I have spent months making videos just detailing these little bits of tech and tips on bikes very, very quickly. Here it is. Here's the meat and potatoes. Off you go. And those videos that you just talked about you, that you made, they're, they're on YouTube, I assume? They're just starting out. Yeah, BMW released the second episode last week, and uh, I've uh, they I have 10 uh, ready to go, and then I am in the production of another 10 now. Wow. Oh, okay. That's, that's a lot of videos. That's great. Yeah. And there's plenty more to do. So I'm hoping they stick with it. Wow, fantastic. And nice to see that you're, you're still staying in there. And of course, they can afford it because I'm sure that the, um, the, the sales for BMW have probably gone through the roof like everyone else, at least at the start of yeah. the year. It sure looks that way. Every time I go to a dealership or hear from a dealership, you know, they're telling me like, we are out of bikes. We just mm -hmm. don't, we need more because people are coming in and picking them up. And that's great. You know, the exciting thing that, that I'm hearing is that a lot of these buyers are new or returning buyers to the market. So, I mean, COVID could be the, the savior for the motorcycle industry. Hmm. It's interesting how that came together, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to talk about the GS Trophy. Yep. What is your connection w with the GS Trophy? Well, um, they came up with the first concept of a GS Trophy in 2007, 
And um, I was a sales guy at a BMW motorcycle dealership. I was a GS rider, not a particularly good one, but I rode. And I really liked the idea of getting a chance to go and compete. I thought I might be a good competitor. So I applied to be in the GS Trophy. And the way you did it at the time, there was no writing involved. It was you you sent out a resume, basically, and you showed them through your resume, hey, this is what I can do. This is what I'm capable of. And you should send me to this trophy thing. And from those resumes, they picked six riders and they sent them to the BMW Performance Center. And they chose from those six riders their top three and sent them off to compete. And that happened in the very first one was in uh, Tunisia, uh, North Africa. And, and I didn't get picked, of course, and I was really disappointed about that. But life goes on. And then in 2010, when they started doing the next go, um, I was working at Rawhide Adventures at the time, and they were responsible for choosing the top rider. So my brother and I helped build the courses that were used to determine who would go to the 2010 GS Trophy, which at that time was in South Africa. And since then, I've always had some connection with the trophy. You know, I always never have gone personally as a competitor, but always as a bystander, always as an enthusiast. And then um, in 2018, when it was scheduled to go to Mongolia, um, I was hired to be sort of the spokesperson for BMW USA to go and uh, go to the GS Trophy qualifiers and watch the people compete and, and cheer on the teams and figure out who was going to go. And then, um, and then I went to Mongolia as the a team journalist. And then in 2020, I went again in New Zealand as the host of the GS Trophy International. Hmm. Yeah. And, and we had you on a while back and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that because that tells your, your backstory. And, and there's like, that's a really interesting story, I think. And it talks <laughs> about how you ended up going from the salesman to working at Rawhide. People may wonder that. So that link will be in the show notes um, uh, thank you. to get that. So what is the GS Trophy exactly? So it's, an international competition, um, it's not a race, and anybody that goes is going to hear that a lot, um, but it is an opportunity to sort of test your skills in an international environment. So BMW, every two years, they put on a uh, international qualifier competition to determine um, who the best riders for that country are. And then they take those best riders and they bring them to some really cool exotic place in the world and they compete against each other for a week or more um, to try to sort of win the coveted um, status of top uh, team of riders in that country. So it's been held in all over the world, South America, uh, South Africa, North Africa, South America, uh, North America, um, Asia, and of course, New Zealand as well. Now, um, the, the concept of, of something like this is not really a new concept. Many years ago, they had uh, the Camel Trophy, and there's been other things done like this. But for for motorcycles, there there was I don't think there was anything happening like this. Not on this scale, because uh, from what I understand, BMW does this chooses um, countries from everywhere they sell motorcycles, which I assume is almost everywhere. Yeah, just about, you know, we'll have, you know, as many as over 20 countries usually represented at any GS trophy. Wow. But one of the criteria is, is that they have to be amateur riders. They don't pick people that are pro riders. They want just everyday enthusiasts to be the competitors and get a chance to go, which I think is another really kind of unique angle on this. You know, it's not about bringing in pros. It's about bringing in you and I to go play. How does it work exactly? You talked about they, they, cho they choose people from each country. To give a little breakdown on that. So basically every country that, that sells BMWs has an option to have a qualifier event. And um, if they opt into it, then they host usually a single event where they advertise and riders from all over that country show up to that event and they spend several days competing doing usually GS centric things, you know, how to, you know, riding the bike in various different circumstances, conditions, you know, sand and mud and hill climbs and maneuverability and that sort of thing. And once they uh, go through this sort of pre-qualifier, they pick their top 10 or 20 riders and they put them through a final qualifier event. And, and this is key because Germany dictates what the final qualifier event will look like. They have very specific guidelines for this is how the course is going to be laid out. This is how, um, you know, these are the kind of uh, obstacles that they need to be able to encounter in the final qualifier event. And that 10 or 20 riders are subjected to that. And from that, they pick the top three riders and they make them into that country's team. 
Once that occurs, all of the other teams get their riders together and then they send them off to wherever the host country is of the qualifier the following year. So the GS Trophy International may be held, you know, in, in any number of exotic places somewhere in the world. And, and the winners from each country get sent there, all expenses paid with a riding suit to that country. They get on bikes, brand spanking new bikes with their names on them, and they go out and they compete for however many days. It's really fun. Do they get to keep those bikes? <laughs> um, and some countries do have the option of buying their bikes after the qualifier uh, if they want neat. to. Yeah. We don't so much do that in the U.S. because of emissions elements and that sort of thing. It's very difficult to bring them into the U.S., but, but countries can and a lot of people do. Now, once the, the someone has entered and, and tried the GS Trophy, whether they win or not, can they go back and do it again? Yeah, the, really, the, there's very few criteria that stop a person from competing in the GS Trophy qualifier. If you compete and you don't make it, you can keep going back until you do, if wow. that's something you want. However, once you've gone and competed in the trophy, you can't go back, at oh, least not as a competitor. Oh, okay. So you can do the, the preliminary, but you can't go on to the advanced one where you're actually going to the event. Exactly right. Once you've gone to the, the final event... Um, as a competitor, you cannot return as a competitor. However, you can return in any number of other non-competitive roles. So um, the, the people that host each ride each day, the marshals, they're almost always post-competitors. You know, they come back to the trophies, really enjoy the experience. They want to come back and enjoy it again. So they sign up to be marshals and they ferry around the competitors of that year. You mentioned it's not so much about winners and losers, about, I guess, team team spirit and, and working together. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> the It's really interesting uh, point you're making is that, you know, if you go and watch videos of the GS Trophy, there's, you know, many of them, but there's um, official videos from BMW for each year. You'll watch a five to 10 minute recap watching the riders go out and do their thing day after day. And it's really intense. And of that five to 10 minute recap, you might have five to 10 seconds dedicated to the winners of the GS trophy. It just doesn't really matter that much. You know, you go there to compete, you go there to win, but once you get there and you meet all these other teams from all over the world and you get absorbed in different cultures, the, winning becomes sort of secondary. You know, I'm there to have a good time and ride. I've already won. You know, I'm, I'm here to have a good time and enjoy the country and the landscape. And if I win, great. If not, no big deal. And that, that sounds like something that somebody who loses says. <laughs> if they don't win. But, but this is this is truly what the, like, I mean, they've designed it this way. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, the first time I went to one was Mongolia as team journalist. And, you know, I went there to win. My team went there to win. We expected the attitudes of everybody there to be like that. And what we discovered the first night we're together in a group of these people is that, you know, we're, we're, we're not coming to a competition. We've come to a, a party and a competition broke out. Like it's a very relaxed, fun environment. And yeah, we're pushing ourselves and we're trying to win and we get frustrated when we don't, but it's not that big a deal. How did um, the GS Trophy get started? I mean, what's the backstory here? And tell me it's, it's not just a marketing plan. <laughs> I think that understanding that means understanding the people that created it. And, and I happen to be very good friends with a couple of the people that are part of the team that, that built the GS Trophy. And, and what I can say about these people is that they're hardcore, passionate motorcycle enthusiasts. And I don't just mean BMW enthusiasts. These are people that own lots of bikes from lots of manufacturers. They ride all the time. If you go to their offices in Germany, they've got dirty, smelly gear hanging off of their chairs. It's really inspiring to see that. And they wanted to go out and have an experience where people got to really ride these bikes the way they're designed to be ridden. And, and I, it started out really small. I mean, the, the first GS Trophy, there was only five countries represented in the entire event. There's maybe 35 people on bikes, which is a big deal by any standard, but compared to what the trophy is now, that was very small. And it was mostly about enthusiasts just getting out there. And yeah, there's pictures taken and there's videos taken and that stuff gets used for marketing. But the goal was is to just bring the community together and have some fun. You mentioned that um, that it's just the average rider going, but they are picking the best in, in each country. I mean, now it's been running for a number of years now. Is it still, you know, just the average 
Tom and Sue riders going out there and, and, and seeing what they can do? Or is it now getting into more people who are more advanced? I mean, it, you know, they don't have to be pro, but they, you know, the difference. I mean, the difference like for the way you ride, for instance, to the way, um, you know, maybe a beginner would ride. Sure. I, I think that you see certainly a diverse level of skill, but the, the winners of the last couple of GS trophies in the USA, these are just regular folks that wanted to go out and ride. I mean, these are not people that, you know, um, have um, doctorates in the degree of motorcycling. You know, they're just riders having fun. Yes, they're very good, but they practice really hard to get that good. Um, and uh, they're still, you know, plumbers and, and mechanics and um, sales guys that just wanted to give it a go. We're going to take a quick break to thank a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. But when we come back, we're going to start off with what to expect. And we get a lot more. Stay with us. Located in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia, that's southern British Columbia, there's a place that riders like to stop at. It's called the Red Rock Garage. It's on Highway 33 in southern British Columbia. Uh, the Red Rock Garage is a small coffee shop, they say, with a motorcycle addiction. And as soon as you visit there, you will get it right off the bat. They are definitely addicted to motorcycles. The owner, Dan, um, a true motorcyclist riding an adventure motorcycle, probably just like you. Uh, they have everything there. They've got clean washrooms. They've got fuel, of course. They've even got a B&B and a campground. So the next time you're looking for a destination, you're heading out, maybe you're going north-south, maybe you're going east-west, doesn't matter. Go out of your way to go to Beaverdale, British Columbia, Highway 33 in, in southern British Columbia. The Red Rock Garage sits there waiting for you. The website is redrockgarage.ca. .ca means Canada. Redrockgarage.ca. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33, the Red Rock Garage. Redrockgarage.ca. Still looking at my boots the other day, flipping them up and looking at the underside of them. I'm stunned that they aren't all chewed up by the foot pegs that I'm running because I'm running a more aggressive foot peg that IMS makes with some pretty sharp teeth on it. But part of their design is the staggered tooth design that spreads the weight out. It's kind of like if you think about uh, laying on one nail as opposed to laying on a bed of nails. You probably have heard this before, laying on the bed of nails, you're supported and it even can be considered quite comfortable. Of course, laying on one nail, you can imagine what that's going to do for you. That's part of the design that goes into a an excellent foot peg, which is what IMS makes. All their foot pegs are CAST certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're heat treated, but aside from being incredibly tough, they are designed for adventure bikes, for your style of riding, our style of riding. And no matter whether you want a large platform like their ADV-1s or ADV-2s, right on down to the smaller pegs they get you need a foot peg that will keep your foot connected to the bike. That is paramount. And you'll, you'll know that from listening to our rider skills segments. The website is imsproducts.com. Have a look at the foot pegs that they have. They've got a, a full line. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. So what can you expect? Let's say somebody was thinking of trying out for the GS Trophy, because this thing can be intimidating. I think everyone has that thing where they get out with a group of people and they feel that pressure until you get very used to it. You feel the pressure of everyone standing around watching. The thought of going and competing, that's like a whole other level. and It takes almost yeah. a, a different type of person for it. You really hit the nail on the head with that. And that's what really I struggled with was the competitive element of it. The riding itself has its own level of difficulty, but when you're riding and you've got somebody staring at you or a group of people scribbling on clipboards while you ride, it adds this extra layer <laughs> of intensity that's really difficult to get past. Um, and uh, so you know, sort of part of the prep of the event is, is getting your head ready to deal with people staring at you and poking at you. I mean, everybody's very positive, but you know, you're in your own head and that's very difficult as a competitor. That being said, the type of riding that you have to do to qualify is not terribly difficult. You need to be able to ride a bike slow. You need to have exceptional control of your clutch and your brakes and your throttle. Um, you need to be able to do basic things like break the rear tire free, stop really hard in a low traction environment. And these are all things that people can practice in a dirt parking lot. It doesn't take you know, access to big um, facilities. It doesn't take a ton of training. It just takes understanding the basics and getting out there and practicing until it's muscle memory. Do people offer GS training? Like can people actually go out and get training now? Yeah. The, uh, G the GS trophy 
qualifier training they have at um, the BMW Performance Center. They offer a course. I believe Rawhide will offer GS Trophy pre-training and, and both of these facilities have the actual courses that have been competed on in the past. So you can go out and ride those and you can get instruction. But the big thing that you can't get there that's very important is what you pointed out earlier, which is you got to be ready to be in the competitive mindset and have people staring at you while you try to do it. Mm. How do you overcome that? I think that if it were me running the training, I would give people the psychological element of it, you know, stand there with a clipboard and yell at them when they make a mistake and the sort of things that you might hear when you're out there in a competitive environment. So you just get used to it. Mm. So it's just a matter of doing it over and over. So the more, the more type of thing that you've done like this, like if you've been out to any sort of rallies or, or not so much rallies, but I, I guess more competitive things, if you've done that in the past, you sort of have a leg up uh, to the, the rank beginner. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That, that being said, you know, that type of pressure affects people in different ways. You know, we've seen people that we thought were a shoe in to win the qualifier completely bomb because mm -hmm. they just weren't ready for that mindset. And then other people that did exactly the opposite where we didn't give them much heat and they came out on top and go, well, there you go. Well, part of the intimidation is the fact that a lot of these people that are standing around are excellent riders. And I think, you know, if it's anything like me, you know, for many people, I think, think this, that um, somebody's going to find out that I'm a fake, that I'm not near as good as, as I thought I was, you know, oh, and, and, and that's the fear. That's a, that's a real um, hit to your ego when that sort of thing happened. And it has certainly happened to me. I, I've tried to compete in GS Trophy courses. I've helped build them and I can't do half of what the winners do. Um, and it's not that they're head and shoulders better than anybody else. They just have worked on the finer nuances. Uh, for example, uh, trials riders. Um, I have found people that ride GSs that also ride trials bikes on the side are usually far better at handling the qualifier elements than others because they really understand balance and brake and clutch and throttle control better than anybody else. Mm, yeah. That, and that is for adventure riding, really. I mean, you know, that's a great thing to get into, really, if you're into adventure riding to, to really hone your skills. Yeah. Um, another element that, that has been a struggle in the past that they found a resolution for for the trophy is getting more women involved. You know, of course, adventure riding is for everybody, but um, there's this sort of block between getting women to come in and try out for the trophy because we, we want women on the teams. We want women represented internationally, but it's very rare that we get women out to compete in the trophy qualifier. So they've now introduced a new element where they have international women's teams. So even if you don't make your country's team, you can try out for the women's team and they'll have one or two or sometimes you know, maybe more next time um, teams of just women representing their countries out riding in the final event. Mm. And now is, is that separate? Do they actually do they separate the women and the men? Well, that's a good question. And there's a lot of uh, haze around that because um, oftentimes the, uh, each country's team is referred to as the men's team. You know, we have the international, the team USA is the men's team and that's not true. Um, any man or woman that competes in the GS trophy qualifier can make the country's team. However, if a woman doesn't make the team, then they can try for the international women's team instead. So if you pick your top three team members for your team and one of those top three is a woman, then she's on the team. However, if she doesn't make the top three, then she can qualify for the international women's team. And what BMW does is takes women and flies them from their host countries to another country and has another qualifier event where they have just women competing and they pick from that qualifier event the top female teams that will go on to the final event. And then at the final event, do they have a, like a women's section and a men's section? Um, at the final event, everybody competes in the same thing. What do you think the advantage is, or if there is one, that men have over women for this competition? I mean, is there an imbalance here? That is a really good question. I've given that a lot of thought. I think that as adventure riders, as advanced adventure riders, we come to know that adventure riding is mostly about technique. It is not necessarily about muscle. There are times when you need a lot of physical prowess, but as you get better and as you get more acutely balanced on the bike, it becomes less and less about muscle and more about technique. But you have to go through the process of learning that and learning that takes a, is, uh, takes a major physical toll on you as you're getting to understand those elements. And I find that we don't have as many women 
pushing it to the point that they get to where it's just about technique. And I know plenty of women that do and um, are very, very good, but those women are not necessarily competitive people. There's like, yeah, I could do it, but I'm not interested in going out and competing on behalf of my country. I don't need that pressure. I just want to go out and ride bikes and have fun. So what you're saying is it's the, the beating, the physical beating, I guess you have to take in the learning process that sort of turns women off or they're looking at it and thinking that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm it? probably, I'm probably talking out of turn by, by saying it, but that, that's what I've seen. You know, I, I remember first learning to ride an adventure bike, you know, in 10 minutes on the bike, I am covered in sweat and my hands are so stiff. I can't even see my knuckles because my fingers were so swollen from holding on so tight. And my instructor who at the time was Jimmy Lewis said, you're holding on too tight. You should never wear out a pair of grips or a pair of gloves. If you do, you're holding on too tight. And I remember it took me six months of riding before I learned just to relax. I don't have to be this intense on the machine. And that six months was enough for me to pretty much want to get out of it. I go, God, this is just so hard. I go, Ugh, I'm just, I'm beat up all the time. I'm sweaty all the time. You know, I didn't think about the fact that it was making me really fit. You know, <laughs> um, but you know, once I got the techniques down now, you know, I can ride a thousand miles a day, you know, with an index and a thumb on the handlebars. You know, I don't, I don't hold on tight anymore. You know, I don't get tense like that anymore. And once I got to that point, it be, adventure riding became very, very easy for me. And I think that's the case for everybody. You know, it's like once you learn that, you know, where you need your balance to be and where you need the techniques to be applied, you don't need to be so physical anymore. How long do you think it takes to get to that point? You know, that is a good question. I, I think that the ambient level of skill that comes to a beginning adventure rider is much higher now than it was when I started. You know, I, I started in 2003, 2004, and back then it was celebrities and ex-racers that adventure rode. It wasn't um, regular folks like me. These days, I, I feel like enough people are out there doing it and we see enough people of all different shapes and sizes and genders out doing it that people show up going, you know, this isn't, this is hard and it's going to challenge me, but it's not as hard as maybe I thought. Or, you know, I see people picking up on the basic skills I'm teaching much, much faster. It may, may have taken me a whole day to teach people what it now takes me an hour and a half to teach them. So I think it's getting easier and better. And we're going to see more people doing things like the trophy as a consequence. A little off topic question here. I'm just thinking, because, you know, you're you're a trainer, you're, you're a certified instructor. Um what is it about riding the adventure bike that is so appealing to you in, in your mind or what you see in, in the people that you teach? Because we all know that we can get rid of the adventure bike and get a dual sport or a, uh, you know, a smaller bike that's going to be a lot easier to handle. I guess it depends on where you're riding it. You know, I, I just got back from uh, riding in Moab and in Moab, I went from 65 miles an hour on the asphalt to riding off-road to going back to the asphalt to going back to off-road for some very intense off-road riding without taking my feet off the pegs, without stopping. You could do it all without doing anything. And on top of that, where I went when I went off-road are places that people can't get to in a regular vehicle. Yeah, on a dual sport bike, you certainly can. And those are very fun. They're not fun for me on the highway. And I get a bike like that and I get up to 65 miles an hour, I, I feel like I'm going to get rattled apart. Um, where, you know, a big, beefy adventure bike is very stable on the asphalt. It's not as capable off-road, but it does what I wanted to do and it takes me where I want to go. And I think people generally, uh, that appeals to them. You know, I'm going to strap things on my bike. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to disappear and go somewhere where other people don't go. And I want to be able to get back on the highway and hightail at home and feel comfortable on the asphalt as well. You know, and, and I'm not like, obviously I am into adventure bikes. I mean, it's, it's my life, but I have to, I, I often uh, sort of grapple with this because that's sort of, you know, justifying everything is a compromise. And of course our adventure bike is a compromise. So we're justifying it by saying that the highway makes up for, you know, the, the big bike and that makes us comfortable on the highway. Yet you're, you're sort of paying for it off road. And where I'm thinking is, and I've, I've thought for a long time, isn't there a thrill in taking something that is really kind of too big to go where you're going? Yeah, I, you remember, this has been told to you before. It's been told to many of the people that listen to this. You know, you show up at a place to go off road and people say, you, you can't take that there. You can't do this here. That bike is too big. It's too cumbersome. It's too heavy, whatever it is. And it feels really good to be able to do it. And 
and not only survive it, but do it and do it well and get through it. Okay. I mean, that's, that to me is very euphoric. It feels good. You know, and I, I come back after somebody told me it couldn't be done. I go, well, I guess it could. It, and that's, that makes me feel good. And that's what I'm here to do. Hey, if you like a smaller bike, knock yourself out. That's, that's all good to me, but I want to go out and challenge myself in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so too. And I, and I think when you look at the smaller bike, you expect it to go into these places. You look at it and somebody goes up a, you know, some sort of steep hill or, or whatever the obstacle is and you go, well, yeah, that's what the bike is made for. But with the adventure bike, you start looking and go, geez, are they going to do this? And and then it's <laughs> impressive. You know, you look at anything that's yeah. really neat. There's, there's a, there's a, a thrill to the challenge of maneuvering this very capable machine. They're very capable for their size. Absolutely. And, and it's, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment. It comes out at the other end. And in the case of adventure riding, that accomplishment is usually also followed by getting to see or be somewhere, see a view or a piece of history that people don't tend to get to see. Maybe they don't have the range on a dual sport bike. Maybe they don't know to bring a Jeep up there, but you have it all to yourself in that moment. And it's just a really special experience. And that's really what the GS Trophy is all about, isn't it? I mean, seeing what these these bikes can do, and and they're obviously taken to the extremes. I, I want to talk a little bit about the obstacles that you're dealing with in the GS Trophy. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say it's oh, it's really difficult and really tough. How difficult? How tough? And and what is the intellectual and the, and the physical aspects of it? I think that. It's really important when talking about the GS Trophy to understand that there is the trophy qualifier and there is the trophy. And the what you have to face between the two is very different. Uh, the GS Trophy qualifier, I think, is a much more physical, much more intensive experience. It's concentrated, hard adventure riding. Not hard in the sense that people expect you to do wheelies and jump over things or anything like that, but hard in the sense of very technical riding and having a good mastery of the controls of your machine to get through and balance. When you get to the actual trophy, I, I don't think the competition is really quite as hard in the sense of physical ability. It is difficult in the sense that you've got a lot more pressure on you to perform well. Um, it's difficult in the sense that you have to think about strategizing more than you have to think about necessarily just plowing your bike through to get to the wind. There's, uh, they add elements that uh, are more mindful and less physical. Because when you're at the final event, GS Trophy, you have competitors from all over the world, but the skill levels are still widely varied. Even if you pick the best riders from each country, they're not necessarily on par with the best riders of another country, and they want to equalize the event. So they make it physical, but they also make it about um, understanding strategy and team strategy and coming up with ways to win that people may not have thought of. Well, walk through one of those obstacles where they have to come up with some sort of strategy. I mean, I mean, pick one that, you know, sort of stands out to you and describe sure. it. Sure. So uh, 2018, Mongolia, the Gobi Desert. Um, we stop in the middle of nowhere and there are hundreds and hundreds of wild horses running about and there's beautiful views and nothing but sand. And so here we are and they have set up a slow race. And the goal is very, very simple. Each member of your team gets on their bike, and when they say go, you ride as slowly as possible from A to B. So Team USA is in one slow riding course, and right next to them is Team uh, France. Now, they are not competing directly against each other. They're competing against the best time that's been done. So the, the longest time wins in this in instance. And so Team USA, these are all very skilled uh, trials riders, they know how to ride a bike slow. So everybody sort of expected Team USA to have this win in the bag because they had been watching them ride. And they're like, oh man, Team USA, they know how to ride slow. They're going to nail it. So all the cameras are on Team USA. The gun goes off. The riders start riding slow. Team USA is doing spectacularly well. And the cameras suddenly switch over to Team France because Team France has ridden all three bikes up next to each other. Each rider has taken a foot off of their bike and rested it on the bike next to them. And they are sitting still balancing with their legs splayed out on each other's bikes. And they hold the bikes in place there for several minutes. And everybody's blown away because no one thought that that would be acceptable, but they, there was no one in the rules that said you couldn't do that. So Team France blew the doors off of everybody else because they very quickly came up with a strategy that they had never tried before and went out there and implemented it and beat everybody. 
That's just incredible. I mean, it's really cool. <laughs> you would think that that would be that would be classed as, as cheating. So, so do you get time to think about this? I mean, when they come up and they say that we have the slow race, and you got to figure out a way to sort of conquer this, do the teams get time to think about it and come up with a plan? Yeah. So typically, what happens is you know, there's various obstacles that you'll be facing throughout the day, and and you know, of course, having there be you know 20 teams out there running through these obstacles is very common for you to show up at an obstacle and have to wait around for you know several minutes, maybe up to an hour, to wait for your chance to run through. And sometimes you're able to see what the other teams are doing in that obstacle, and you're able to come up with a plan. Other times, you're not told what you're going to experience until you are at the start line, ready to go. So. Um, they, they do a really good job of trying to keep things really secretive. They, um, they have a list of what each marshal is allowed to tell you about the element. They are not allowed to deviate from that list. So they tell you what the, what the instructions are. If you ask questions and they can't answer the question from the list, then the question doesn't have an answer. And that is your in. Because if, they, if you come up to the instructor and say, am I allowed to put my foot on the other rider's bike and they can't answer the question, then basically what you've done is you've revealed a secret path that you can, that you can try that maybe no other team has tried yet. You just gave an insider tip. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is how, you know, team South Africa is their South Africa just puts out incredible riders and they have won the GS trophy several times. And a lot of the reason that they have is that their every team has a journalist that goes with them and they're, team journalist has been to almost every GS trophy and has seen how it all goes. So he's able to coach his team and get them ready in a way that other teams may not necessarily have the advantage of. So other teams come in and go, I'm out there to ride hard and fast and win, but they don't realize that that's not enough. You have to have strategy involved or you're not going to win. I've seen some photos and, and different things of the bikes actually being suspended while the team tries to put the bikes onto uh, a cable and, and has pulleys on it and they're trying to get it across an obstacle. That's very physical. And, and it would strike me that the team with the, the bigger people, the stronger people are going to do better. Is that part of every trophy? I haven't seen that in the last two. You know, the the physical elements of the trophy. I mean, it is certainly a physical endeavor, but... Uh, but I haven't seen the, certainly not the last one, but the, uh, which was in New Zealand, but in Mongolia as well, um, physical prowess wasn't necessarily that important. I mean, you know, it certainly helps, but if you don't have the physical prowess, you can still do everything. It just has to be, you have to think of technique instead of muscle. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, is, is this a competition for the fit, the young? I mean, how old is the oldest person? How fit or unfit can you be to run this? I, I, I don't think that I, I don't want to discount the need for physical fitness, and it's not just because of the competitive elements. You know, when we were in Mongolia, we had to ride between two hundred and three hundred miles a day, and most of that was off road. Most of that was in a sandy desert, and that's in, you know riding in the sand is hard work, and so even discounting the competitive elements that occurred throughout the day, just riding from A to B every day is really hard on you. And you have to be able to maintain stamina through that. So being physically fit is important. That being said, I think we've had riders as up into the 60s riding and then riders as young as their 20s riding. And we've had different body shapes and styles and fitness levels that have been able to pull it off. But if you're really serious about getting in there and trying to make your mark, you got to be ready to do it fitness wise. Mm, yeah, and, and that is that is goes for just regular riding too, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, I mean it's hard stuff. Now, you, you, the event itself, when you're there at the GS Trophy, you just mentioned about having to ride certain distances. Can you talk about what it's like? Are you moving camp from one to another? Is it almost like the Dakar? So it is a the pictures you see of the Dakar. You know, you'll see a big group of motorcycles riding together, and usually there's about a hundred people on bikes riding from A to B every day. What you don't see is another 100 people driving trucks and support bikes and support helicopters from A to B every day, carrying all of the infrastructure needed to make this the event happen. So typically the way it would work is you'd wake up at about four in the morning, maybe five in your tent that is provided by BMW in your sleeping bag and sleeping pad that's been provided by BMW. You get all of that stuff packed up, you get dressed, you go and have breakfast, and then your team departs 
maybe between six o'clock and eight o'clock in the morning with your assigned marshal. You know, have somebody that guides you through the day. And after you leave, you will ride anywhere from 150 to 350 miles a day. And along that ride, you will stop for one or two or three competitive elements. You go through those elements, you get to camp at the end of the day. By the time you get there, there's a big truck full of uh, your camping gear and everybody else's. You go find your gear, you set it up, go have dinner, listen to the score results, maybe get a cultural experience depending on the country that you're in. And then you go to bed and you start all over and you do that over and over again for seven to nine days. Wow. So a little bit like the Dakar, same sort of, same, a little bit. you know, something similar. Now, these things that you're doing during the day, you get no warning about them. They just all of a sudden your marshal pulls in, stops and says, okay, now we're doing this. That's exactly right. You, you'll show up at a, an event. They don't want you to know anything about it ahead of time as often as they can manage it. So you'll stop usually at some really beautiful location where you get to get off your bike and take some pictures and enjoy the local culture. And then they say, okay, now that you're here, we're going to put you through an event. So your team is going to be up in 15 minutes. It's going to involve motorcycles. You're going to need all of your gear. Be ready to go in 15. And in that time has elapsed, you show up and, and there's a marshal there that says, okay, here's the Here's the goal of the course. And they tell you what you need to do and you go out there and do it. You get back on your bike and you continue on to the next element. You mentioned earlier that um, it's teamwork that, that, that they're sort of looking at, that it's not so much winners and losers. How do you, how do you get teamwork into this? I mean, you talked about your example there about the slow ride. How do the separate teams then all of a sudden become a team or is it individual teams? Well, this is particularly tricky in the USA because in almost every country that hosts a GS trophy qualifier, they have a singular event that everybody goes to and you determine your top team members at that singular event. So by the time the event's done, we all know who that team is going to be and that team all knows who the other team members are going to be. However, in the USA, this is a very big country and it's very difficult to run the GS Trophy Qualifier in a single location. We've done it before, but typically we run two or three GS Trophy Qualifiers. So we'll pick the top riders from up to three different events. And these riders may have never met each other before. So now you've got Team USA. They've never met. We've got to come up with a way to get them together and get them collaborating as a team. Because it is an important element of it. You know, if you're doing a tire change competition, for example, each member of the team needs to know what they're doing. Otherwise, it's going to be a big jumbled mess. So we try really hard in the USA to get the team members together, put them in a single place and give them a chance to ride together and work together and put them through obstacles to practice so that when they go to the host country, they they know generally how to operate it as a team. How well it works, you know, it varies from team to team. <laughs> But between the teams, is that part of it as well to develop that? Because I, what I see with the GS trophies, it's it's almost like um like a lot of the the marketing shots that are sent out, you know, are people doing goofy things, playing around on bikes, having fun, and it looks like it's you know generating this spirit of um, more than a competition when you, when you look at some of the photos. Yeah, the. So as I mentioned, you know, as you're riding every day, you know, there are competition elements throughout the day, but you're not necessarily scored on the ride from A to B every day. You're only scored on how you do in the competition elements. So through the rest of the day, you're just out riding. And every day, a team from a country is teamed up uh, with a team from another country and they ride together. That doesn't mean that they're scored together or that they have an effect on each other's points. It just means that Team USA may be riding with Team South Africa on day one. They may be riding with Team Asia on day two and so on. So the idea is just to give the teams a chance to interact with each other and have fun together and ex expose each other to one another's culture. My, my favorite experience in Mongolia was riding with Team China. And when we would stop anywhere, Team China would get into their bikes and pull out this really elaborate tea set complete with a heat element. Now, keep in mind, it's almost 100 degrees in Mongolia. And these, these guys would make tea with cups and they um, invite anybody over that wanted to join them. And I sat down with team China who couldn't speak a word of English. And we just sat together and drank tea in the Gobi desert. It was such a cool experience. I had nothing to do with competitive element of the trophy. Who should try out for a GS trophy? I mean, we talked a bit about, you know, what, what sort of skills are, are required. 
what, what type of person do you, do you need a BMW motorcycle? Do you have to be a, a follower of the GS trophy? I, a lot of the people that I've seen make it all the way to the end have never before known what the trophy was. You know, when Bettina Nadell made the international women's team in 2018, she had only been riding a GS for a few months when she went to the GS trophy qualifier and won her chance to go to the women's qualifier and then won her chance on the international women's team. So it's, you don't have to have a lot of history. What you do need to have is you need to own a GS. So any GS that you own, you have to be willing to ride that GS and the GS trophy qualifier. And in 2020, one of the criteria in the Team USA was that you had to own a GS and you had to ride that GS in the qualifier. I don't know if that's going to be the case this time. But the only other criteria were is that you're not a professional rider. You can't have a motorcycle, uh, like a racing license. Um, if you do, then that disqualifies. You can't own a BMW motorcycle dealership. Um, if you do that disqualification, of course, you can't work for BMW. You can't work for um, companies like the Performance Center or Rawhide Adventures um, because that would give you an, um, an unfair leg in. So beyond that, anybody with a GS and some riding skill can go. A lot of people go that have no intention of winning. They just like to go and ride and compete and have fun with each other. Mm. But, uh, but if you want to do it, you can do it. What's the prize? So... If you go to the GS Trophy Qualifier and you make the top three um, as riders, your prize is you are on Team USA and you are going on an all-expenses-paid trip to somewhere exciting in the world to go ride, someplace that you may never otherwise have gotten to ride on your own. Um, and uh, you're provided with a lot of gear that you know. There's going to be a brand new bike. And when I mean say brand new, I mean the bike's got five miles on it waiting for you at your host country with your name on it, ready to ride. It's spotless and set up and ready to go. You've got a riding suit, camping gear, all of that stuff is provided to you. It's all made just for you. It's got your name on it and everything. You get to keep it at the end of the the event. If you don't make the GS Trophy qualifier, then the prize is is that you got to go out and have fun on a bike and enjoy camaraderie from other with other people. And maybe you didn't make it and you'll try again next time. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Again, and I think it's, I mean, if it's by design, it's very clever. If it's by accident, it's, it's great the way it worked out, not having a cash prize or something like that, because it, it turns it into an experience rather than the, the ultimate win where you're, where you're walking away with that money, you know, it changes the nature of the competition. Yeah, I think that's true. It, you know, it's, it's a very interesting experience to, for somebody that wins the qualifier to be put in a spotlight that they may never have been put into before. Um, You know, when you win the qualifier, suddenly you're representing Team USA or you're representing the international women's team. And there's a lot of pressure that comes with that, but there's a lot of excitement too, you know, to to have pride for your country and and stand, you know, tall carrying your country's flag and and be there representing as you do in, in this moment of limelight that you achieve. Uh, let's just talk for a minute about the bike itself. What is the bike that you end up riding, this bike with your name on it? So it depends on, it, it depends. It's been anywhere from an 800 um, FA100 GS to an FA50 GS to a 1200 uh, GS so far. And it, it varies depending on what bike is the bike of the day at the time with BMW. So um, one chances are it's going to be uh, for the next GS trophy, it's going to be an 850 or a 1250 that you're going to ride. And uh, BMW months in advance ships, you know, over a hundred of these bikes out to the host country and spends months getting them ready so that when you show up, your bike is there and ready to ride and it's got your name on it. And you can, you know, live the life of a sponsored rider for a day or uh, <laughs> for the duration of the tour. Which is really nice. What you mentioned, the the bikes are all set up. How are they set up? So typically they'll have, you know, the basic protection elements that you need a bike to have. So it'll be a bike with all of the, almost all factory options installed on it. And then on top of that, you usually put, you know, a beefier engine protection bar, a beefier skid plate, um, those sorts of things, you know, because bikes tip over when you ride and uh, they have the potential to get beat up. So they do what they can to make sure that they're well protected. And of course, they encourage you to ride the bike in a safe way so that when you're out there having fun, you you can continue through the entire course. And that, that doesn't always happen. You know, we've had um, 
on day two of the Mongolia event, we had four bikes and four riders taken out of the race just because they were riding too hard and fast and had enough of a get off to justify taking them out. They, mm-hmm. they, you know, there was no permanent injury to them. They were fine, but that's the reality of motorcycle riding. It's a difficult and intense sport and you can get hurt if you're not careful. You mean they were taken out because of the way they were riding or because their bike had damage? Because they, because they got injured. Oh, I see. So we had riders get injured and, you know, the, at the end of the day on day two, they said, look, you know, that this is one of the problems riding in Mongolia for those of you that never have is that the, the riding is really easy. It's, um, it's sand, but it's very hard pack sand and you can ride 80 miles an hour in it practically with your eyes closed for an hour and not hit anything. I mean, there's just nothing out there. And then all of a sudden, suddenly there's a major obstacle in the middle of the road that you didn't see coming because you were looking at a camel and <laughs> you weren't ready for it. And, you know, you have a get off and you get injured and they don't take any risks. You know, if you, you have a get off, then the helicopter comes in and gets you. And, and, you know, in the case of some of the riders, they got flown to Beijing so they could make sure that they were properly cared for. And uh, they were all fine. But, you know, we didn't know that at the time. So you got to you got to be a safe and considerate rider when you're out there doing this stuff. Oh, so just a get off. That, that's it. Like even if somebody stands up, and says, no, 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 I'm good. I, I can go again. They, they, they still haven't checked. I wouldn't go. It's not that extreme. I mean, uh, if, if somebody comes off the bike and they don't get up, they don't get up right away, then, you know, the, the red flags come out and we get, uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're here to make sure everybody's safe. So if you really get your bell rung, then they're going to pull you out and take a look at you. Who handles the breakdowns? You, you mentioned you're riding from one place to another during the day. You've got those several hundred kilometers or, or miles <laughs> that you're doing. <laughs> Who deals with the breakdowns? When, when a vehicle uh, yeah. breaks down? <laughs> I got to tell you a story. I, I was out in the Gobi Desert. I'm riding my GS. I had stopped to take pictures of my team as I was the team photographer at the time. And they were way ahead of me. So I was riding hard and fast to play catch up with them. And I hit a rock and I hit it really hard. I hit it hard enough to dent both my front and rear rims. And I blew out all the air in my rims. I mean, just pow. It was so intense. I'm so I feel silly because I should have seen it coming and I didn't, but it, it it took me off my foot pegs. I mean, it was a really hard hit and I had to stop. Of course, both my tires are wrecked. I can't hold air anymore. And so I'm standing out there in the Gobi Desert. What am I going to do? And this old rickety truck comes ambling down the trail behind me and it's got a BMW roundel on it. So it's one of our support trucks that they bought in Mongolia and put a roundel on and, and, we, the guy pulls up, he goes, you all right? And I said, yeah, I, I blew out my, blew out my rims. I don't suppose you have spares. And he, he looks in the back of his truck and I follow his gaze and back there is a GS that has been just pummeled. I mean, there's not a piece on that thing that wasn't broken and he's looking at it and he's eyeing the rims and I'm staring at the bike laying on its side going, I don't think I want those rims. <laughs> Not after the bike has been through whatever it's been through. I think I'd rather wait. And as we're talking about it, another truck shows up with another mechanic and all he has on the back of his truck are tires and rims already mounted, ready to go. So out there in the desert, this mechanic got out, helped me understand the bike, pulled off my wheels, put new ones on, got me up and running and going again within 40 minutes. I was back on the road and that's how they deal with it. And they've got a whole team of mechanics that are following um, the teams and making sure that if there's any issue that they deal with it. Wow. That's incredible. That is like a sponsored <laughs> rider, isn't it? <laughs> it's a major, major undertaking. It's really impressive. How much money do you think that BMW spends on this? Man, I have no idea, but the, just the cost of having, you know, a hundred bikes shipped from Germany to wherever they're going to go and back again that's, it's mind boggling to me. And then on top of that, having all of that infrastructure, all those cars and having a helicopter that follows us from a, to, from site to site to site all the time. I can't imagine. I have no idea, but it's massive. Yeah. It has to be, it has to be huge. What, what do you think? Like the GS trophy, I mean, it's, it's gained a lot of press, got a lot of press, a lot of coverage. I think a lot of people know what the GS trophy is. And now there, there's some other ones. KTM has the, their adventure trophy that they've put together. How do you think the GS trophy has changed or helped shape adventure riding for us? It's interesting that you say that because I really feel like in the U.S. that people don't know much about what the trophy is. I feel like it's generally when I talk to people about it, they say, I have no idea that that exists. What is that about? And, and, I, and in that way, I feel like um, as a company, BMW is, could do a much better job of letting the world know that it exists. 
Um, that being said, I think that there's generally something that you and I face as adventure riders where people say, yeah, that bike is all for show. It it looks like an adventure bike and it can't really do things that that you think that it can do, you know, unless you're going to Starbucks, you know, and insert laughing note there. But, you know, when I hear stuff like that and I think to myself, I rode this bike from Mongolia. I know that it can do the things that, that you think it can't do. I think that that is a um, solidifying element for people. You know, they see what this machine can do, whether it be BMW or KTM in their events. And they go, hey, there's big bikes out there doing the things that I've been told they can't do. And these are not professional riders. These are just riders that are enthusiasts that go out and practice and learn their, their tricks and get it done. So why not? Why can't I do it? And the fact that that a company like BMW puts so much money into this, and we don't obviously we don't know how much, but it has to be a lot of money. I mean, you, you can sit there and just add it up in your head and, and just keep going and going. Not to mention all the incidentals and and insurance and all the other things that go along with doing a, an event, particularly a, a multi country event. It would just be hmm. huge. Do you think that says something to the industry about the importance of adventure motorcycling? Yeah. I- I don't know how long you've been in adventure bikes. Um, I've been in it for about 15 years and uh, or a little more. And every year we've seen the adventure industry grow and we see it become more popular and more people get involved in it. And, and I think that elements like the trophy really show us that um, manufacturers are taking this, uh, this type of riding really seriously. And and I don't see the roof on it. There's just so much we can do and so many places we can go. And having events like this, whoever the manufacturer is that runs it, helps us to know like they're serious about it and they're going to keep pushing it and helping us um, enjoy this type of ride. And no company is going to keep putting money into something that doesn't work. They started this back in 2007 and, and they're still yep. doing it now with BMW. That's a lot of years a lot of commitment that they put into it and there's, it's obviously going to keep going forward. So they definitely wouldn't do that if it wasn't working for them. The, I had quietly my doubts about whether or not they would run the 2022 GS trophy because of the way things are in the world right now. I thought, and they may decide that this isn't right to do it, but I can tell you with confidence, I am on the planning team with team USA or with the U S market to help get the qualifiers ready for 2022. So it is going to happen. We're going to see it. And if I know BMW, it's going to be bigger and better than it's ever been. That's just the way they do things. So 2022, that's going to be the actual competition, the final competition. And then 2021 is going to be the qualifiers. That's exactly right. So um, every uh, every odd year we have qualifiers and every even year we have the actual competition. So in 2021, we will announce our qualifiers wherever they are in the USA and all of the other countries, host countries will have their qualifiers. We'll pick our teams and then 2022, we will go to the next trophy, wherever that may be. What sort of things will you do in 2021 at the qualifiers to accommodate the, the COVID situation the world is experiencing if all things remain somewhat equal? Well, that's going to be really interesting, isn't it? Uh, because uh, what needs to be done varies from state to uh, to you know country to state to county to city in some cases. So it's all going to depend on where these things are held and, and what the guidelines are. That being said, I'm sure that BMW is going to take whatever is the most um, aggressive measures by any state and employ them every at every location if we have more than one qualifier, depending on what the situation is at the time. But we're going to do it. So the strategy may be just avoiding hotspots then? I think that it's going to be, and I don't know for sure, but my guess is, is that it's going to be whatever, you know, reasonable precautions can be in place to make sure that everybody's safe. And that's not that hard to achieve on an adventure bike. I mean, you know, you're not necessarily particularly close to other people when you're riding. You know, you've usually got plenty of protection on and and which usually help, uh, usually qualifiers are held in big, giant, wide open spaces where people have plenty of room to get around each other. So if things remain as they are, I think we can still run it and stay safe. How exactly that's achieved, we're going to see. If someone doesn't have a BMW motorcycle, is there any chance of them getting in? Yeah, they'd need to buy a BMW motorcycle. <laughs> You are so BMW. <laughs> I, I, I want to give you the last word here is, as what's your pitch? Why should people check it out? I think that when you see somebody that is really pushing themselves 
to their personal limit and they're working really hard towards something, you tend to see the real essence of what that person is. And usually that essence is really good. So when you get a chance to watch somebody compete or to compete yourself and to push yourself and to prepare in a way that maybe you never have before, you discover some things about yourself that are really, um, really good about you. You know, what, what are your limits? How far are you willing to go? And when you are around other people that do that, I find that you see the best in those people and you make lifelong friends. I, I have never been a GS Trophy competitor, but I have made some of my best friends watching GS Trophy qualifiers and going to the events as a non-competitor. And it's, re- it's a very inspiring thing to see. It is the essence of adventure riding is the people. That was Sean Thomas, BMW ambassador and certified instructor. Now, we've got some pictures from the GS Trophy that Sean has taken himself. If you drop by our website and check the show notes for this episode to have a look at those. We also have a link to the episode that we did with Sean about his life and how he went from pretty much a street rider that was about to give up riding, really, to an extremely skilled riding instructor. And and he eventually earned his BMW instructor certification. That link is in the show notes um, on this episode. You can go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it on our website, Adventure Rider Radio. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Don't forget we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out monthly. It's roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. Um, it's quite popular and I think you're going to enjoy it if you enjoy Adventure Rider Radio. It's a separate feed. You need to subscribe separately. Anywhere you find podcasts you can find Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Now, if you're not supporting the show already, We have built it on a model of advertising and listener support. Uh, We would love to get your support for the show. Drop by AdventureRiderRadio.com, click on support and see what we've got. Anything $10 or more, get you a sticker sent at you for your pannier, your your bike, your uh, toolbox, wherever you want to put it. Maybe somebody else's place uh, if you want to stick it there to show that you've been there. And anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on Raw. And we would love to get you as a monthly supporter on our Patreon account. Love to get your support there. So anyway, drop by, check it out. We'd uh, we'd really appreciate that. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. All right. Hi, this is Gina Marie Austin from TwoWheelTwoFeet.com, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>